Welcome, everyone, to another episode of There's Just Something About Kansas City, where we join in casual conversations about the people, places, and things that make this such a great place to live. And the first thing you're asking yourself is, why does Frank Ball have a bow tie on? And we got a great story for you coming out of here, because I have the one and only Mr. Bowtie himself. <laughs> Without a bow tie today, former mayor of Kansas City, Missouri, the one and only Sly James. And Sly... I semi have to apologize, but number two, I think it's great that I have the bow tie on and you don't today. Well, you know what? When you said casual, <laughs> casual know. don't mean bow tie to me. <laughs> you know, so I came casual. Uh, but, yeah, you look good in it. Thank yeah. you very much. We're going to have to teach you how to tie a real bow tie. I know. I know. This is the hook. I've yeah. got the hook on, yeah, which you, is cheating. Yeah, you're above the age of 10. You <laughs> can tie your own tie now. <laughs> I, I had to tie my own tie so much that uh, – it was just uh, just crazy. So uh, you know, my entire life. So we just uh, just go from there. You know what I mean? Let's talk about the bow ties for a second. Sure. Okay. How did it all get started for you with the bow ties? I won a bet, or I lost a bet. I'm not sure which. Uh, but it was with John McGurk, my first chief of staff, and the bet was, I think if I lost, I had to wear a bow tie. I must have lost. So I wore a bow tie that he gave me, and my wife tied for me. Uh, and yeah, because I, I was hey, young. I were, was you, younger. were you older than ten? Were you older than ten? A little bit. Then but you should have known how to tie the yeah, bow tie. Yeah, 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 yeah. It comes back to haunt me. Uh, but anyhow, I wore it, and people started saying, "You look good in a bow tie." And so I said, "Okay, cool." And so the next time it came up, I wore another one, and then I kept getting compliments, and I kind of liked them because you can do a lot of stuff with the bow tie uh-huh. with patterns because it's smaller. And the, if you have the same pattern on your tie, a uh, long tie, it looks like you just stepped out of a of a uh, yard sale. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so you don't want to do that. <laughs> so I started liking bow ties, and it was unique, and it became a uniform. And one of the things I've learned is is that now that I'm out of office, when I'm not wearing a bow tie, people come up and say, "You look familiar." I just, <laughs> and I would say, "Yeah, uh, I'm, you must have seen my last movie. I'm Denzel Washington." You know? right. uh, but but so I started wearing this bow tie, and it became sort of fun. And then people started sending me bow ties, so I had to wear them. So I decided that rather than having my wife continue to tie my bow tie since I was a big boy then, I would learn how to do it myself. So I went off to a conference, and I took nothing but bow ties. I figured if I take nothing but bow ties, I'm going to have to wear a tie. Set up the iPad in the bathroom the night before the meetings, and I'm watching the iPad, uh, how to tie thing, and I'm tying, and it's wrong, and it's wrong, and it's wrong, and it's wrong a hundred times, and my elbow starts to hurt so bad I can't do it anymore, (laughs) so I had to go buy a straight tie, but I was determined not to let a bow tie beat me, so the next day I went in, and I found out a a unique thing. There's 50,000 ways to tie a bow tie (laughs) on YouTube. You just have to find the right one, so I did. I learned how to tie it, and that's it. I never wore a straight tie after that. Yeah, right. In fact, I don't think I don't think I've ever seen you in a straight tie. Ever. I, in the early years, yes, but after that, no. Yeah, I haven't worn one since. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Slide James a little bit. Let's uh, let's go back to uh, to childhood, and you are a Kansas Cityan, absolutely, uh, born and bred here, high school here. Then yes. uh, we'll talk about going off to the Marines and being an MP, and then going coming back and going to college and doing all that sort of thing. But uh, let's talk about the childhood growing up at, what, 44th and Montgall? 44th and Montgall. I actually started uh, up until the age of nine at 1118 
Armstrong in Kansas City, Kansas. And my parents moved to Kansas City, Missouri, because they thought there was a better educational option here in Catholic schools. So we had to convert to Catholicism, because back then you couldn't just go to a Catholic school and pay your tuition and, and do that right. like you can now. Now, then you had to be Catholic. So the good news was is that Catholic Mass was an hour long, and coming from the Baptist religion that was like four days of the week, uh, we thought it was a savings overall, so it was worth the investment. So we went to Immaculate Heart of Mary School on Swope Parkway. Um, I used to jump Brush Creek, climb the hill and go up. Wow. Uh, walk from 44th down the down Prospect to the, to the school. And then after that, uh, went off to Bishop Hogan High School, where I was for the entire time that I was there, the only black male in a school of 600. Wow. Now, here's the, here's the upside and downside in one fell swoop. I went out for football. I was automatically a running back and a wide receiver. <laughs> Didn't have to do anything. It was like, that's where you're playing. And I said, okay, you know, at 138 pounds, that's all I could perfect. play that anyhow. Was a perfect spot, right. But, you know, school was 600, 400 were girls, 200 were boys, and the school football team sucked. <laughs> it, was, it was horrible. We went a year without scoring. Without scoring? Yeah. But Not we, just without winning, but without scoring. Yeah, but we were playing Paseo and Central, mm -hmm. and and the players on the freshman team at Paseo and Central were driving Cadillacs and smoking <laughs> cigars when they came out to play. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was not a good time, but we had some good friends. And I remember the famous thing was when we played Pym Day. And we hated Pym Day because they always made fun of us. And we knew we would never win. But we told them, we may not beat you, but we're going to hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was, that was high school. Yeah, and then you, you get to end of high school, and I'm, I'm not going to assume here because I'm going to let you tell the story. You're getting out towards the end of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Correct. You're right. At the end, was it set? When did you get out? 1970? Graduated high school, 69. Oh, 69. Okay, yeah. I was so 1A right draft eligible. Wow. And so I kept calling, and in 1971, early 1971, they reached me. Uh, they were about to reach me, so I started looking around. This for is for the lottery now. We're in the lottery oh, at yeah. this point. Yeah. Well, I was gone. There was yeah. no ifs, ands, and buts. Mm -hmm. I was gone. My father had been a Marine. And I remember saying, oh, you know, the Marine Corps today is nothing like it was when I was in there. And, you know, that <laughs> music you're not. listening to ain't real music. You need to listen <laughs> to stuff that's got one drum, one one bass, and one guitar. Uh, you know, no singing, no singing. Right. Uh, but at any rate, um, so I started looking around, and the Marines, when I went to uh, talk to them about recruiting, they said, if you get drafted, you are 100% going to Vietnam. If you enlist for four, your chances go to 50%. I thought, I'll take my chances with the 50%, enlisted for four. Uh, took off on my first airplane ride to uh, uh, San Diego uh, for boot camp right. and became scared for the next 13 weeks. Yeah, they, they scared you. They scare you straight there, don't they? It was, uh, it was an, a life-changing experience to go through boot camp because – I did things that I never thought I could do or would do, and in some instances should do, but because I had done them, then I started to believe that you can stand on your head for a week if you have to. Right. Uh, so it taught me the, the concept of perseverance. And the other thing it taught me was to shut my mouth. 
you know, uh, I'd been a hippie. I was railing at the walls that, you know, down with the war, burn the draft cards. And I learned that sometimes it's better just to keep quiet and wait for your shot as opposed to be standing at the wall. But I had to be there, and I made the most of it. And frankly, the Marine Corps is one of the best things I ever that ever happened to me. Yeah, I was going to say, I probably set you up pretty well with the discipline, knowing, like you said, there's some things you didn't think you could do, you could do. And I think you have to get out of the Marine Corps. You probably think I could probably do just about anything. Well, absolutely, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, and, and the other thing was is that it gave me, when the Marines talk about esprit de corps, they mm-hmm. mean it. Um, the Marines are unlike other uh, military branches in this regard only. I've never been in a place where I found out that somebody was a Marine and we didn't have a conversation in end with Semper Fi, uh, where we didn't talk about the Marine Corps a little bit. Right. Or, or there's something about being in the Marine Corps, which is a small, relatively select group, uh, and, and, and bad people, really bad people, well-trained, uh, and it was it was just kind of made you feel special to be a Marine. Right. Um, and and when all my friends were going off, well, let me tell you this story. I, military police was trained at Fort Gordon, Georgia. Fort Gordon was an Army base. And we went there after boot camp, 13 weeks of boot camp, and then eight weeks of infantry training. Every Marine's an infantryman. So we were climbing mountains, going on two-day hikes and stuff yeah. and firing. Had your pack on, your 60-pound pack. We were getting ready for war. Right. And they were training us to go to war. And I frankly appreciate it. We even had T-shirts that said, war is our business and we're good at it. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but it's true when you're mm-hmm. in that circumstance. So going to Fort Gordon, when all the Marines showed up, we were automatically made leaders in the in the company. We were, when, when we were practicing uh, hand-to-hand combat and there were bones broken, they were broken by Marines. When we talked to our friends from the Army who were there about what they had done, we had done so much more. We had fired every weapon that could be fired that could be held absent flamethrowers. We had thrown grenades and done all this stuff. They hadn't. Right. And when you're thinking about sending people off to war and they haven't had the same types of experiences, you felt a little bad for them. Yeah, sure. They so didn't have the training you had. They didn't have the training. Um, and... You know, it was fairly obvious in some instances, but they were good people and they were doing what they were supposed to do. Right. Okay, so you're an MP and you uh, I, you saw a lot of the world being an MP for the Marines, didn't you? Saw a lot of California, <laughs> but then saw uh, then was in Japan and the Philippines. Japan was cool. The best uh, bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich I ever had in my life was in Japan. Uh, the most uh, jarring cultural change was in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um the, some of the funniest things happened in Japan. For example, we all drove uh, Ford tr- pickup trucks right. in military police. And I remember we were ch- going to get a prisoner, and we were on this narrow mountain road. And I'm scared because I don't like heights, and I don't like driving close to the edge. And I could look out the window and see a fall, and it was like not good. Uh, so we were doing that, and, and we came back, and then we had to go out into the into the ville to pick up a prisoner. And I was with another guy, and he was in front. So we were going down this narrow street, more of an alley. He got stuck between two buildings and couldn't get out. <laughs> I mean, literally couldn't get out. There's no sunroof. The doors are jammed. Right. Could, we had to call for a tow truck to pull him out. And then he had some trouble with the with the brass because he just wrecked a truck. Uh, 
but that was a neat thing. We went to uh, four of us went to um, uh, Tokyo uh, on what we thought was a weekend leave, and we took all of our money and we hopped on the train. We went to Tokyo and we were there. and And before the night was over, we had no more money. Had to get back on the train and come home. <laughs> You're moving pretty quick there, right? It was it was nice. It was fun. I loved, however, the Philippines, and the Philippines loved us. It was sunny all the time. Uh, the food was outstanding. Everything was cheap. I was working two days off, two nights on, two nights off, port and starboard with a mixed Navy Marine Corps group uh, doing shore patrol, walking up and down the streets, collecting the drunks, breaking up the fights in the bars, separating the ladies of the evening from the guys who <laughs> wanted to have the ladies of the evening with them, um, and was there on New Year's Eve, 1974. And the entire Seventh Fleet was in, and the Australian Fleet, the British Fleet, and there was a couple others. There was, I don't know how many sailors walking around Alongapo City. Alongapo City is like four blocks one way, gets to a T, and goes two blocks in those directions, lined by restaurants, bars, clothing things, and little knickknacks. Place was packed. The number of military was outnumbered by the number of women. Um, and we had this. It's amazing how they attract that. Uh, tell me about that kind it. of clientele. Tell me. Well, <laughs> people in the Philippines, you, you talk about poverty. Oh yeah, there was serious, serious poverty. It yeah, makes yeah. makes our poverty look relatively middle class. I mean, serious poverty. So they were doing what they had to do to survive, and I don't, I don't shame them for that. But it was a great evening. We had was one Aussie. We ultimately had to arrest because he kept walking down the street with his pants around his ankles. We gave him a warning, and it didn't work. And then we the had, Australians, you know. Then we had the world's greatest party at the NCO Club with Tower of Power. Oh yeah, from Oakland, California. I know Tower of Power. My shore patrol buddy was Wilbur, all day long, all night long. Gage, Wilbur was about six foot four, two hundred and fifty pounds of muscle from Oakland, California. I was his favorite band. And we got some brass monkeys in him, and he just went wild on the dance floor. Fantastic time. I loved it. Offered to enlist for four years if they guarantee me two in the Philippines. And they said, everybody wants that deal, no deal. No deal. So you didn't do that. Okay, no. now, before we go on, you know, you talk about Tower of Power, and you talk about a band in high school. Yeah. You had your own band. Okay, was, and you were the lead, yeah. and you were the lead singer of this band, yeah, right? Yeah, and you you did you did the opening act for Jefferson Airplane? Yeah, nineteen sixty eight. You got to be kidding! Memorial me. Hall. So t so what tell, a blast! Tell us about the, the group and the whole thing. Well, there's a whole story that goes with this. Yeah, and you were the <laughs> Amelia Earhart Memorial Flying Band. <laughs> <laughs> Who came up with that name? Tom Cassidy, uh, who is unfortunately <laughs> no longer with us. But Tom was one of those guys who was a little bit out of the box, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> what what a name for the band. Oh, it was great. We did, got, did you have a female in the band? Not at that time, okay. no. All right. No, but, uh, but at some point, the Amelia Earhart Foundation kind of contacted us and said, uh, yeah. you shouldn't be using that name. So we wound up being Manchester Trafficway. <laughs> but the Jefferson Airplane concert was absolutely pivotal. Um, we were, my family and I, we were going to the Chiefs game. It was Sunday. And I loved the Chiefs then. I love the Chiefs now. And so I went in to tell uh, my 
my band leader, Chris Emily, called and said, hey, we got an audition to audition to be the opening act for Jefferson Airplane. I said, cool, when is it? Today. <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay, so I went and told my father, I got to go to band practices. Oh, no, you're not. You're going to the game. I said, no, I need to go to band No, you're going to the game. I said, I, if I don't go to band practice, we can't get this gig. This is really cool. We got to do this. He said, no. So I said, okay, um, hold on a minute. I got to go back and get something. I went into the house, put on a sweatshirt, grabbed all my school books, everything I could carry, went out the back door, jumped the fence, and left. Went and, and went to the audition. We got the gig. And then I did not, I never went home again. <laughs> Ever? Ever. I never <laughs> went home again. Didn't talk to my parents for four years. Oh, you're kidding me. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, went to the bank the next How day. How old were you then? I was 16. So you're a, ju- a junior? I was a junior. Junior in high school. Uh-huh. Took all your books, clothes you just had on your, your body and just left. Yep. And went to the bank the next day, took all the money out, paid my tuition for the rest of the year, and that was it. And the tuition money that you had there was because of the band, right? Well, were, you, were you making money? As- we weren't making enough then. Okay. The next year, however, I was able to pay all my tuition out of band money oh, wow. and then some. I was, man- I, I was renting a house at 18. Oh, okay, <laughs> it was weird, but yeah, it was pretty fun. But uh, that was a pivotal, pivotal time. Uh, it was uh, as one of those things that I that kind of told me early on, you can do more than what you think you can do. Uh-huh. It may be tough, it may be weird, but you can still do it. And so I had this choice, and I, I love my parents, but you know, at the end of the day, I was a sixteen-year-old. I was going to do what I was going to do, and they weren't mm-hmm. going to tell me. Right. All right, but. I could not let the other members of the band down because I wanted to go to a football game. Wow. And I was ticked that my father wouldn't see that and let me go. So I had a choice. I could either go and be mad at him or and let my friends down, or I could go and they could be mad at me. So I decided to go do what I wanted to do. And frankly, it was the best thing in the world for me. It made me independent. Right. Did it uh, did it also uh, influence the fact that right after you got out of high school, you went to the military? The fact that you weren't talking to your mom and dad and at, at that period during that period of time a little bit, and you just decided, you know, I think this is the way to go. No, you know, it, those two things weren't really linked. What I was just gone. I had blown an opportunity to take a scholarship to Notre Dame. Wow. Uh, they came to look at me and talk to me when I was at Hogan. Uh, because they wanted to diversify Notre Dame, and I'm sitting talking to the guy, and I said, you're really just here talking to me because I'm black, right? And he didn't care for that. Yeah, right. So that ended that. But then again, I look at things very differently. I don't look back with any regret because all the things that happened to me are the things that made me who I am today, and I kind of like me. Yeah. So I'm not going to sit back and try and change something because it would have changed the entire trajectory and I'm happy with where I'm at, so I'm happy with where I've been. Yeah, and I've heard a lot of people say those types of things, too, when something happened to them. And they then got through it and became who they became on you know later in life, that they were so happy that they'd done what they did. Well, Even I, though at the time you just wondered, is this going to work out? Yeah, but you know what? Not taking the safe bet all the time taught mm-hmm. me that you don't have to take the safe bet. You can take the adventuresome bet, and you'll be okay. So that was the first time I came uh, confronted that. The Marine Corps reinforced it, and everything else has been the same way since. I've never been afraid 
to take an unconventional route to get to where I want to go. Right. So the the military at that time, I got out of college in 69. You got out of high school in 69, right? So so you're significantly older, older than, than you are. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So you're the old. deal is, if uh, before I went, when I was in high school, which was I graduated in 65, um, I could have... Uh, because I went to college, I was deferred. Right. So if you'd gone to college right out of Hogan, if you'd accepted the yeah. ride to Notre Dame, whatever, you wouldn't have had to go to the military. Probably not. Right. Yeah. But you still say the 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 best thing that ever happened to you was uh, the military. It taught you. There is no civilian equivalent to military service. Oh right. Exactly. There is nothing that's going to compare to it. Having gone through the Marine Corps uh, and the pride of finishing that and doing well there, uh, I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I'd been deferred. Um, I would have always had to listen to my father tell me about the Marine Corps and how tough it was. <laughs> uh, it, now, my father was a Marine. I'm a Marine. One of my sons is a Marine. Um, you know, so all of those things are are pretty much embedded in me, and the lessons learned uh, still with me today. For example, there's two things that I learned that I, I live by. One, my father taught me, you can't go wrong by doing right. Number two, from the Marine Corps, improvise, adapt, and overcome. And I live by that because one thing you learn when you're learning how to do battle is you can have all the plans you want. The first bullet, those plans go out the window. You better <laughs> improvise, adapt to the conditions, and overcome. Or you're dead. It's just that simple. Yeah, that's right. Who, who was the boxer that said, uh, everybody has a plan? I think it was Mike, Mike Tyson. Tyson. Said, until, until, you I hit you, until I hit you in the face, <laughs> then your plan goes right out the window. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly so. right. Exactly. Okay, so you serve your military. You come back. Thank you for your service, by the way. Oh, yeah. And... Um, you decide I'm going to go back to school. Obviously, you're a good student. Yes. I mean, there's I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yes. I think when we talk about your college, you'll I hear more how about sometimes, that. Sometimes, but yes, I was. Yeah, right. And so you decided to come back, and you end up at Rockhurst, right? Yes. You decided to go back to school. Had that been your plan after I got military, I'm going to go back. Um, I uh, knew to that school? I wanted. I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. Okay. I knew Gosh. I wanted to be a yeah. lawyer, so I was going to go to college, and I I love Kansas City plus. I didn't see any reason to go looking around someplace else, so I decided to go to Rockhurst. Um, it was nice. It was comfortable. I enjoyed it. I'd been Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. Going to a Jesuit college didn't seem like a big switch. Nope. It was kind of like, okay, that's cool, um, and did that, and uh, then went off to Syracuse University for my first law school year and transferred to University of Minnesota, finished there in 83. What made you home. transfer from, uh, number one, why Syracuse to begin with, and then number two, why the transfer? I had a fellowship at Syracuse that was pretty sweet. Uh, the fellowship paid for all my tuition, all my books, and gave me a living stipend. Plus, I had the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. So whereas in college, I'd been working 40 hours a week and going to school, now I'm, man, I'm in the lap of luxury living in a studio apartment with an Irish wolfhound that took over the entire place and had money in my pocket to buy candy bars. You know, <laughs> couldn't beat it. There was no room on that couch for anybody but the Irish wolfhound. And, uh, and, and, and he, there was no arguing with him because he was bigger than me. That's right. Uh, but, uh, but I transferred because the fellowship at Syracuse required me to take a class outside of the law school every every semester and I calculated that that would have been 
delayed me by a semester of graduating. And I said, mm-hmm. no, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I'm older than all these yeah, guys. Yeah, you're, you're already late to the game anyway because yeah, you I, served four years. I don't want to be doing that. Plus, yeah. the other thing was is that when I signed up to interview after first uh, for first-year interviews, there was one Kansas City law firm that was going to interview, and it was Blackwell Sanders, and they pulled out, so they didn't come. So it became obvious to me that if you're going to stay at Syracuse, your chances of working are on the East Coast and then the Eastern Seaboard. Right. I had zero desire to do that. Especially after one winter in Syracuse, New York, too. That's probably enough. Yeah, so I made the brilliant decision to get better weather by going to Minneapolis. Was Could have gone to Miami or yeah, something. I was geographically, <laughs> weather-wise, ignorant. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was um, tough. But, and also, too, Syracuse kind of messed me up because I had gone to a party and it was bad and it was snowing and the snow was blowing horizontally. And I realized I'm in the area of town where the streets are all named after presidents in the order of their service. I had no idea of whether I should go towards George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and I'm like, somebody get me out of here and give me some, some map or something. But uh, I, the, one, the main reason was the class and then uh, uh, getting back to Kansas City to work. Um, I had some good job offers in Minneapolis after law school, but I couldn't see doing the winners there voluntarily. I just well, I, couldn't I, do it. <laughs> Listen, I spent two winners in Green Bay. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. You know okay. the drill. Oh, gosh, yeah, heck yeah. So uh, then you start uh, applying for, for jobs, obviously, right. and interviewing or whatever. And your first job? Blackwell Sanders, Matheny Waring Lombardi. I turned down the uh, Minnesota Attorney General's office. I had wow. another office offer in Minnesota. I had an offer in Chicago, and I had an offer with Brian Cave in St. Louis. Uh, Brian Cave, uh, good law firm, good people. Uh, but I was a little bit put out um, uh, by a couple of things. One, uh, I was interviewing with a partner who had who was called away, and he said, you know, walk around, talk to some of the associates. I walked in. Two associates in an office. I say, hey, how you doing? And we talked for a while. What do you guys do? And they said, we do this. And then we're on our rotation. What's your rotation? Well, we spend six months in banking and six months in construction and six months in tax and six months in this. I said, you have to do that? He says, yeah, everybody has to do that. I said, no, not me. <laughs> I'm not doing <laughs> I that. I ain't doing that. Um, and I said, how do we get back to so-and-so's office? They said, who? I said, okay, I get it. <laughs> too big, too much. Right. And then they took me to lunch at a club, and I looked around, and I had this sensation that I was the only black person there who was sitting down to eat. Everybody else was serving. Right. And a guy comes up and looks at me and says, brother, how you getting here? <laughs> I said, I don't need to be here, man. I'm, I'm going back home. All right. So they were nice, good people, but I didn't want to rotate. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I didn't want to be doing taxes. I would have screwed somebody's life up and they'd wound up in prison uh, for not paying taxes. But uh, so I came and I interviewed with Blackwell and they had no African-American employees at all, but great plan, good people offered me a job. I accepted on the spot. I uh, came back later to see Bill Sanders, who wasn't there. Bill sat with me in his big corner office for an hour talking to me about what I could do and how he was going to do this for me. And then, the, and uh, he takes me around, and he literally, the senior partner in the firm, takes me around and introduces me to every single person that was there. Wow. We come and sit back down in his office. He says, well, uh, we're about done here, but I tell you what, 
if anybody ever gives you any trouble about being black, you let me know and they're fired. And I said, well, thanks, boss, but I've been black a long time. I can handle it. You know, I, I, <laughs> right. I know how to deal with it. Right. And so we got to be great friends, and it was one of the best things going. Yeah. So I was their first black associate, their first black partner, and then at the end of 10 years, I left and did something different with one of the other partners, Nancy Kenner, and we flipped from defense to plaintiff's work. And the rest is history. Yeah, and then you uh, you end up opening your own law firm. Right. Uh, but let's talk about when did the political bug bite you? It's really interesting. I, it was a late bite, uh, but I was what I, my wife would tell you I'm a habitual joiner. Um, you know, I at one point I was on a number of boards and committees and this and that. And I told her, I said, somebody just called and wanted me to do such and such on a board or something like that. She says, oh, I hope they meet between 2 and 3 a.m. because that seems to be the only time that you would have to do it. Oh, boy. And I said, mm, <laughs> nope, I don't think so. So um, uh, I was working and I was starting and I'd been appointed to the Economic Development Corporation by Mayor Kay Barnes. Um, and I had on, been in the Jackson County. I'd been appointed to... Uh, work on the Jackson County Ethics Commission with a handful of people to do an ethics code that they soon threw in the trash as soon as we were done with it. Um, and I'd been around the political game for a number of things. I was co-chair with Albert Reeder on the uh, stadium reconstruction uh, renovation deals in 2005. Right. And so I've been around all the people in politics, and I was kind of like, there's no mystery here. I mean, if they could do it, I could do it. And then I just started, in, during the Funkhauser era, it was kind of like, I'm really kind of tired of all the negativity and people want to badmouth Kansas City and we always want to be like St. Louis or yeah. Minneapolis or Chicago mm -hmm. or someplace. I said, that's nonsense. We're, we're, we're better than that. So rule in my house, if you complain and you complain and you complain, you have to do something. You either do something about it or you stop complaining. Well, I couldn't stop complaining, so I decided to do something and decided to run. Was told there was no way in hell I could win, and I said, watch me. <laughs> and you did. And I did. You did. In Twice. Fact, in fact, <laughs> yes. You, well, the second time, was, that was a, a, a no-brainer the second time. It was a landslide. Yeah but, yeah. but the first one, you were in a pretty tight contest yeah. uh, with the incumbent, is it uh, Burke? Uh, funk house. Uh, Mike Burke and I. Yeah. 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 And Mike and I were friends and we became even better friends. Yeah. Um, and, and and the interesting thing about Mike is that a lot of the things that he and I were both talking about were very similar. Right. And so we actually met and and said, you know what, Mike, I don't know who's going to win. And he didn't know who's going to win. He said, but I said, why are you doing this? He said, I, I just want to I just want to serve the city. I said, me too. I said, so how about this as a deal? Whoever wins will call on the other to help. Okay, yeah. and we had that deal. So I won. He came up and said, "Gee, I'm glad you won." Um, <laughs> I, I said, I, "I really want this job anyway." <laughs> I, I said, "Well, you might not be because I, I need you to chair the arts convergence for me and oh, put together gosh, an arts yeah. plan." And by the way, this Google thing, I want you to join with the <laughs> with the five people that Mayor Reardon has agreed with uh, to put on a committee, and I'm going to put you on a committee. You'll chair our side and work together with them for a year or so and yeah. put together a plan for how we're going to maximize the return and investment on Google. And he did those things. And then he came and said, you know, I got this hotel deal. Originally it was Hyatt and turned out to be Lowe's. Right. And then he died. Uh, yeah. 
was uh, gone. He's gone too soon. That's for sure. Way too soon. Good man. Good yeah, man. I always call you the mayor of all seasons <laughs> for Kansas City because you've done something virtually in every season that this that this city uh, has really uh, latched onto and and grown from. You talked about uh, Google. Yes. And you're talking about you know you're trying to make Kansas City the Silicon Valley of the Midwest. And what you did, you were involved in the streetcar. Yes. Uh, you're involved in, um, oh, so many other things. University Park, um, the streetcar line, diversity initiative in the Bar Association. Yes. Which, you know, you came in the Bar Association, here you are. You're the only African-American partner at your law firm, knowing that, you know, we've got to do a better job here as well. Yes, so, indeed. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the one thing that I think people always point to the things that are visible. Right. As the airport. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. A Lowe's Hotel, which you know, I, I was talking to somebody today. I said, and they said something about uh, where's the 2024 U.S. Conference of Mayors going to be? I said, it's at the Lowe's. I said, you know, the hotel that people said we didn't need connected right next to the streetcar that they said would fail, and all the people are going to come into this new airport that's not nearly as convenient as the old. Um, that's that's where it is. Um, gotcha. But the, but the one thing that I think was most impactful was Turn the Page. That was the very first major project we took on. I'd gone to D.C., I'm sorry, Baltimore, June of 2011, my first year, for the first U.S. Conference of Mayors meeting. And I met a man, Ralph Smith. Ralph was working for Annie Casey Foundation. Um, and at that time, he was talking to all the mayors about, do you know how important third grade reading is? And I said, I have no idea. And so he sat down with me and he told me, and I said, this is wild. Let's talk some more. And we did. And so he, he said, you can do something about that if you, if you wanted to. And I said, okay. So we talked and I said, all right, I'm going to try to do something. So I came back, asked the staff, can you get me data on third grade reading in the school districts and that touch on Kansas City? Yeah. We got most of it, not all. Not all school districts wanted to give it up. Right. And we found that only 19% of the Kansas City public school kids at third grade were reading proficiently. What year was this? This is 2011. Okay. Okay? 19%. Wow. Now, if you know the connection between third grade reading and how prison, the number of prison cells are determined, you know that connection. So there's a clear connection between third grade reading right. and uh, that. If you aren't proficient at that time... You're not going to be. You're not going to be, and your chances of going to prison shoot way up at that point. And it always, and it affects uh, disproportionately poor kids, brown kids, black kids, in some instances, immigrant kids. Uh, and that... I just found that to be ridiculous. So we started turning the page with the idea of preventing some of that, trying to rectify some of that. And we did not have the ability to work with the school districts because they're pretty insular. They consider themselves to be a totally separate political yes. group. So we decided to work directly with kids as opposed to the schools, and then we would work with the schools where we could. Yeah, sometimes the schools are embarrassed. You know, the school districts are you know can get a little embarrassed or, you know, this is – a direct reflection on us, you know, instead of, hey, let's really try to work together and let's get going. Let's get going forward. They're also very tight about, you know, like when we were trying to do universal pre-K, I, I, they were saying, well, you guys aren't educators. We're educators. Give us the money. We know what to do with it. I right. said, you, you like you have been doing? Because what you have been doing ain't working. Right. Okay? Exactly. Um, and besides that, you're not going to be mindful 
of the real delicacy of the child care and early childhood systems. They weren't going to pay attention to Sally Ann, who ran the 39th Street Learning Rocket uh, for 20 kids from the neighborhood. They weren't going to pay any attention to her. They would take the kids that met their criteria out and leave her with the ones that were required more intensive right. care, higher uh, uh, ratios of student teacher, and, and cost more but paid less. So then you destroy one aspect of child care in order to benefit another. Our plan would have looked at the entire landscape and right. tried to do something for the entire landscape right. with the main goal of making sure that every kid, regardless of where they live, the economic development, their zip code, their color, their whatever, would have an opportunity to have high-quality pre-K right. and avoid third-grade reading problems. Yeah, right, which, uh, and, you know, that was imperative. It, it was. worked. But it's even that's too late. Yes. We, we should have been talking about pre-K. We, well, <laughs> we should have been talking about zero, uh, negative nine to five. We should have been talking about how do we get to pregnant families and start to educate them on what it's going to take. How do we make sure that kids all the way through in the first two years when their brains are 85% formed mm -hmm. and by the third year when they're 30 million words behind their compatriots, how do we avoid that? Because if you're 30 million words behind at three, you're two years behind at kindergarten right. and your chances of reading proficiently at third grade are even less. Yeah, right. That's where we should be focusing and we do not, do we do not focus enough on the first five years of a child's life. Yeah. It's kind of like trying to build a house and not, and, and putting, um, you know, marbles in for a foundation and hoping somehow it doesn't affect what happens with the house above. Yeah, right. And, and it's all, all important to do that. You're right. Um, and then from from that point, okay, with a small, you're a small business champion, obviously, uh, nighttime activity for the young, that was one of your big deals. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, during the time you are mayor, uh, arts and culture, we talked about streetcar system, Google Fiber, new airport terminal, you know, the, uh, new get, supermarket at Linwood in which, the Linwood Shopping right, Center, which in, was in the food desert, needed. food Absolutely. desert. Yeah. In that area. So all, all those things really, you know, you, you really, could, you had to be very proud of what you accomplished. And then I know, but knowing you and knowing the kind of guy you are, you probably think more about the things that didn't get done while you're in there instead of the things that you really did accomplish, but the things you accomplished were amazing. Well, the, the things that were accomplished were accomplished by the, ability to get people to work together to accomplish a specific goal. Right. And we were able to pull together coalitions. I can't ever take credit for stuff without mentioning the fact that a, my former chief of staff, Joni Wickham is stupendous. Uh, John McGurk, when he was there, set the stage, uh, the staff that worked with us, if they weren't doing what they do, I would look like a bozo walking out of there half the time. And we wouldn't have gotten things done. Nothing gets done alone. You always have to work with people. But the things that we wanted to get done, we got a lot of them done. But we had 18 elections in the eight years. I remember the two that we lost. Expansion of streetcar and the failure of the pre-K tax. Right. Those are the ones that I really remember. Um, both but which, now the streetcar is going to be expanded. But it's not expanded in the way to it was going you, to be. I know. It's going to be the airport. It was going to be all the way no, maybe to I'm Olathe? Not, I'm not even uh, – no, because that's that's really a dream. That's a bi-state thing. I'm talking about just doing something that goes east and west. 
If you look at Kansas City and you take demographic slices, you go north and south, you're going to get the same slice in those demographics. It's going to change colors as you go further east, but it's going to be the same people. We needed to go east and west to cut across those lines and to provide some equitable public transportation for people who weren't living on Main Street, weren't living in the core of the city, that weren't the first ones to turn green when Google came and they could put up the money to get Google. That's what we needed, and we didn't get that done um, for a number of reasons. And then when we finally had the vote to extend south down to uh, Whole Paycheck, I mean Whole Foods uh, at UMKC, we... uh, uh, we lost the ability to use a transportation development district in order to do it. So now, if you want to go east and west, we got to have a citywide vote. Yeah, right. And that's a lot tougher. Yeah. So there's people that want to take it north to the airport, and there's people that want to do this and that. But once again, if we do not pay attention to the equitable issues yeah. and don't go east and west— we wanted to go east on Limwood to Prospect, and we wanted to go east on Independence Avenue uh, to areas that would have benefited by the economic development that traditionally takes place right. along rail lines, yeah. which is what we've seen on the on the starter line and what we're seeing on the extension down south. Yeah, but you still have to feel pretty good about what you did as mayor. Everything has to start somewhere. Yeah. And, and I will say this. I am beholden uh, to Kay Barnes. Uh, Kay Barnes stuck her neck out, literally and figuratively, to get things going downtown. So we really started polishing off her drink. Right. Uh, if it wasn't for her getting H&R Block to go there and then build Sprint Center uh, and then Power and Light, I don't know what would have happened. Right. We talked to the mayor. Yeah. We, we've talked to Kay Barnes. She's on a sweetheart. Show. Love her yeah, to death. She is terrific. She's just a terrific lady. She's wonderful. She came in and it was just it was just great. It was yeah. awesome just talking yeah. to her. She's very inspirational. Yeah. She's a neat lady. She's great. So I know you love Kansas City. Absolutely. You would have you've been now you've got the Wickham James uh, law firm. Uh, and no, that of I, course I, is with Joni. Wickham James Strategies and Solutions. We're not a law firm. Okay. We're a consulting firm. You're a consulting and firm. And I okay. don't practice law, but I do do mediation and All arbitration. Right. I see. I always thought that was a law firm because it was you. Well, so it, was, a lot of people do, and I yeah. don't generally disabuse them of it because at some point in time it has some benefit. But right. you don't need to be a lawyer to mediate or arbitrate. And I decided after practicing, after being in office, uh, practicing for thirty years, and then being in office for eight, I didn't want to go back to do that again. I would yeah. have been bored out of my mind. <laughs> I would have. I mean, the same type of stuff, dealing with the same types of issues day in and day out. Yeah. Being in the mayor's office, every day was a box of Cracker Jacks. You never know what you're going to get when you open it up. Yeah, especially the price. That's exactly the end, right. Which so, ended up being a booby price sometimes. Yeah, sometimes right? it stuck to your finger. But you and but you and Joni, she was your chief of staff when you were mayor. So yeah. you two really, when you went into this enterprise together— um, that was, uh, you know, that was the forward move that you that you wanted to make at that yeah, point in your career, right? Absolutely, and it's, it's been great. Yeah, and so where are we in this city? I mean, we love Kansas City. I know you're always trying to make it better. Um, everybody, I think here is is trying to make it better. I think we, I think I'm I'm not from here originally, and I'm very proud of this city. I, all my friends are the East Coast. I'm an East Coast kid, and all my friends in the East Coast they just go, why Why did you stay there? So what are you doing there? I said, man, there's just something about Kansas City. You know, there's just something about the place. What is it about Kansas City for you? Uh, 
it's got to, it's always starts and ends with the people. Uh, you know, it's cliche, but it's true. And if all you have to do to find out it's true is spend a lot of time around people who come in from other places to Kansas City, and they'll tell you they'll tell you things that Kansas Cityans won't necessarily recognize: how friendly the people are, mm -hmm. and how clean the city is. Believe it or not, and 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 I remember we were getting a lot of complaints about potholes. And oh, uh, that's every winter. Oh, yeah. That happens everywhere. Oh, yeah. And so we had there was a group from Minneapolis that came. I think it was Minneapolis, someplace in Minnesota. They were in town and uh, the subject of potholes came up and they said, you guys don't have potholes. We got potholes. You know, and I thought, swallowed a bus the other day. Said, you know what? It's always a compared to what situation, yeah, right, you know, right. but Kansas City is unique for a whole lot of different reasons. Number one, we're a lot more sophisticated than people think we are. Um, we are a lot more innovative than people give us credit for. We're a lot more varied than people give us credit for. And to some extent, we are uh, we have blown away the low expectations. During the All-Star Game, I first saw it in real life when people came in and their favorite line, my favorite thing I liked hearing them say was, I had no idea. Yeah, I came here thinking this, and I had no idea. And then people saying, I'm going to stay an extra day and do this and that and the other. And it was kind of cool when people recognized mm -hmm. the quality. We've continued to build on the good things about us. Our art and our public art, second to no place in the country. Right. We do great there. The beauty of the city, the trees, the green, you don't find that everywhere. You don't find friendly people. Uh, everything that you can get in other places, you can get here, but it's more accessible and cheaper. Uh, housing is still cheaper than a lot of other places. Uh, we've got a varied industry, so we might not hit the peak on the economic cycles, but we don't hit the bottoms right. either. So More of our rolling hills. Yes, exactly like right. So here, yeah. people never really, you might not turn into Rockefeller, but you're certainly not going to turn into, the city's not going to turn into a bunch of uh, street urchins either. Right. Um, the thing I like most about Kansas City is that we have finally realized that we have the potential and the ability to be whoever we want to be, and we're in that sweet spot of still exploring. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and I also think too the uh, the celebrations, oh, yeah. the World Series parade yeah. and stuff, and then the two, well, the Super Bowl of course was huge. The two Super Bowls were huge, and then of course the NFL draft. It just, I mean. I had friends text me, and they said, my God, what is the name of that place where they have all the things in the windows? I said, that's Union Station. Well, what's the place that has that giant tower? I said, that's the World War I Museum. It's, a, it's considered the greatest World War I Museum in the entire world. And they're just going, my God, your city just looks so great. Yeah. Those things have really enhanced it as well. It, you know, you can't help but be proud when you mm -hmm. hear people talk about, come from other places right. to talk about Kansas City. Uh, and I've had the ability to be prouder than most simply because I've been in a position to hear it a lot more. But at the end of the day, the things that all those people are talking about, they've been here all along. Right. They've been here all along. We didn't recognize it. We always had this down-in-the-mouth attitude that we're not as good as. A chip on our shoulder. Yeah. You know, one of the greatest things in the world. I got tired of hearing people say that we're, we're not as good as someplace else. We're not. We ought to be more like... And then finally, during the time that I was in office, I started actually talking to mayors, asking how they could be more like us. Great story. Uh, mayor of Oklahoma City and I were talking. They had just gotten into their streetcar program, and it was just about to open up. And I said, oh, that's really cool. I'd be interested to tell you how it, how it works. And they said, mm. I said, you're going to run it free? He says, well, we're going to have a free trial period. I said, and then what? Well, we're going to have a fair. I said, I'd recommend that you don't do that. 
what we have to pay for. I said, you can put a dollar on there. It ain't going to pay for that. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen. So I recommend you not do it. So he went out, and I talked to him in the free period. He says, people love it. They're all over the place. They're loving it. And I said, and then I talked to him again. He, and I said, what's going on? He said, well, uh, I'm getting a lot of flack. I said, why are you getting flack? And people are saying, why can't we be like Kansas City and have it free? <laughs> I said, I told you, man. I said, so don't be mad at me. I tried to warn you. But having this free, best thing in the world, think about it. Think about it. You can hop on. You can ride free. You can get off. And the, and the beauty of it is if you have to pay a dollar fare to get on, every time you pay a dollar, you have you go on point to point. I'm going to the grocery store. I'm going to buy my groceries. I'm going to get back on, and I'm gone. All right? That's two bucks. Right. All right? Free. I'm going to the grocery store. I'm going to go to a bar. I'm going to have some dessert over here. Then I'm going to go buy some shoes, and it don't cost me nothing. But I'm spending money at every single yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, Look absolutely. at what happened to downtown in terms of development. We had people from Denver coming in to look at the vacant parking lots where they wanted to put apartments and, and restaurants right. when we were building that streetcar. And it's happening again now. Yeah, because the development down there has been incredible. It has. You know, just been in the Sprint Center, helped as well. That's the right. whole thing along. Well, Mayor, I can't tell you how happy I am to have you in. It's been wonderful. Casey's Futures, uh, you know, going to be doggone good. It, uh, it has been, uh, it's just rolling along. There's, every city has its issues. Yeah. Uh, we have our, our issues as well, but overall, Indeed. there's just something about Kansas City. There really is. It's home, and home always is special, but objectively speaking, Kansas City is on a place as well, as, as good as it's ever been, and we haven't even finished the job yet. Frank, I just want to tell you that I was always a follower when you were on TV. You were always my favorite guy in sports and whatnot. And uh, I miss you there, but I admire the fact that you haven't stopped doing stuff and you're not living on a golf course somewhere just playing golf all the time. You're still giving back, and I appreciate that. Thanks for having me, man. Hey, you're the best. Thanks so much for the kind words. That's Anytime. Anytime. All right, bro.